Jason Lacey, attorney at uh, Falston uh, Sefkin in Wichita, Kansas. Uh, he went to law school at the University of Kansas, has a master's degree in tax law from New York University. He has been practicing as a tax and business lawyer for approximately 10 years, focusing primarily on matters related to compensation and the employment relationship, including employment benefits uh, plans, executive compensation arrangements, employment agreements, and compliance with federal laws. He regularly represents both uh, medical providers and medical practices in the negotiation and drafting of employment contracts and agreements. Uh, prior to law school, Jason studied music. He's an uh, undergraduate degree in clarinet performance and played and taught clarinet and saxophone professionally before deciding he needed a better day job. Um, should have brought your saxophone. Uh, he's married to Sky Lacey, who's actually a physician assistant and has been to our practice, or been to our conferences before, and that's how I uh, first met him. Um, and they have a one-year-old daughter, Scarlett, and three dogs. Uh, please help me welcome Jason. Thanks. Well, good morning. I'm uh, very happy to be here. Uh, as Greg mentioned, my wife is an SDPA member, a dermatology physician assistant, and an SDPA member. Uh, so I've been to this, uh, this conference a few times with her, just as a, as a spouse in a personal capacity, and it's nice to have the opportunity to be here uh, in a professional capacity. I, uh, if I was brave, I'd ask for a show of hands about uh, how many people are, are here uh, just saving a seat uh, so they don't have to sit at the very front of the room when the real guts of the conference start later on this morning, or how many of you are actually really interested in uh, legal issues that uh, might come up in your day-to-day uh, -day practice. Uh, but I'm sort of thin-skinned, and so we'll just assume that everybody's here and very excited to hear, uh, hear what I have to say at uh, 7.45 in the morning. Uh, what, what I do want to cover in the 50 or 60 minutes that we have here uh, are some practical issues uh, th that I think uh, center around probably the, the two main legal areas that you would run across or have an interest in uh, sort of personally and as part of your practice. Uh, those being uh, issues related to your employment relationship and in particular your employment contract, uh, assuming you have them. Uh, and then, of course, uh, malpractice and other risk management issues, which I think are always sort of in the back of everybody's uh, mind as they're going about uh, their day-to-day -day practice. Uh, on the employment contract side, just kind of as a preview or an overview of where we're going, uh, you know, how you feel about a contract might depend on uh, which side of the table you're sitting on. Uh, if you're the employer, you feel differently about it, perhaps, than, uh, than as the employee. Uh, what we're going to do today is focus mostly on the employee side uh, of the contract, since I assume most of you uh, are employees and uh, would be interested to know, uh, you know what terms were, were unique to you or were uh, appropriate for you. Uh, if you happen to be on the employer side at some point, you work in uh, management or own your own clinic or, or something of that effect. Uh, what I'm going to talk about today may not be directly applicable and you, and, and you may have a different feeling about uh, where you come down on certain terms or provisions. Uh, the employee doesn't usually get the benefit of drafting their own contract. They usually show up and are handed a contract. Uh, and, and so what we're going to talk about is not, uh, not necessarily how you would put one of these together, uh, but rather how to sort of evaluate what the key terms are in the contract, what areas uh, you may want to emphasize, what things should be there, what shouldn't be there, uh, where some opportunities and, and pitfalls are. Uh, we'll highlight those things that, uh, that you may want to keep in mind if you're reviewing a contract, negotiating or renegotiating your employment arrangement, that sort of thing. And on the malpractice side, uh, you know, we can't really fully cover all the issues related to malpractice in 15 or 20 minutes. Uh, but we will kind of highlight the, the stakes and, and hopefully give you some uh, practical points uh, to keep in mind and uh, help uh, keep yourself out of trouble. So let's dig in uh, and start with the employment contracts. Oh, by the way, uh, typically when I'm uh, speaking like this, I, I like to 
give people the opportunity to ask questions as we go along and kind of do a little give and take. This room is probably not conducive to that. We do have uh, microphones. Uh, but uh, I'll leave some time at the end, uh, five or ten minutes, if you have questions. I'll be glad to take them. If you're uh, uncomfortable asking questions in front of a large group like this, I'll also be out uh, in the lobby both after the presentation and uh, at the coffee break here later this morning, so feel free to grab me. I think uh, the first question you might ask yourself when you're thinking about an employment contract is, uh, you know, why would you want to have a written contract to begin with? Uh, you know, a lot of the terms of your employment relationship are, are more or less market-driven. Uh, your employer wants you to provide a service for them, uh, and you want to be compensated for your time, and, and as long as you're doing a good job and uh, they need you to see patients and provide services, the, the relationship just kind of works. And in fact, in a lot of contexts, uh, people don't have contracts. It's probably kind of ironic, but I don't have an employment contract and, and never have. In fact, in the legal profession at least, it's, it's pretty uncommon for people to have contracts, at least in, in private firms. So it, it's not really an essential part of uh, the employment relationship, but in the, uh, in, in the medical industry in particular, it's pretty common, and, and that's usually because uh, the employer, the clinic, the hospital, whoever you happen to work for, uh, usually wants it and usually wants it so they can tie you down to some sort of a restrictive covenant, uh, particularly in a specialty area like uh, dermatology where so much of the business is dependent upon referrals and, and that sort of thing. So uh, whether you feel like you ought to have an employment contract or not, uh, your employer is probably going to want you to have one and that's why uh, we need to talk about it for a little bit. Here are the reasons you might want to have one, uh, or at least a couple of reasons. Uh, one, working through an employment contract when you're starting an employment relationship or sort of renegotiating one uh, gives you a good opportunity to sort of clarify the terms of your deal up front. Uh, you know, you can kind of sit down and talk with somebody and get kind of a conceptual understanding of what your arrangement's going to be, what your salary is, and kind of your benefits and time off and that sort of stuff. Uh, but, but people, when you're just having a conversation, can kind of have different uh, ideas about what, what they're saying really means. So it can, it can help to kind of boil it all down to something in writing and force everybody to say, yeah, this is, this is really what, we, uh, this is what we're agreeing to. Uh, and then it also provides a fairly clear record of what your deal is. Uh, you know, oftentimes if there's a, a dispute or some sort of an issue that comes up, it doesn't happen right away. It happens months or years down the road, and everybody's sort of forgotten, perhaps selectively, uh, what, uh, what the terms really were. And if you've got a, a written document that lays all that out, uh, it makes proof uh, a whole lot easier uh, when you're trying to sort out what the terms of the deal really are. So that's my, why you, uh, both practically and, and uh, for good reasons why you might end up with an employment agreement. A common provision in an employment agreement is the, the term, how long the employment agreement should go for. And the first point I want to make here is that that may not really matter all that much. Uh, having an employment contract doesn't guarantee you uh, continued employment. Uh, in, in, uh, I didn't look this up, but in almost every state, I'd venture to say probably all states, uh, uh, employment relationships are, are at will. At any point in time, an employer has the right to terminate uh, the employer employment relationship. And, and the same thing on the employee side. You can come in and say, hey, you know, I don't want to do this anymore. And, and you can't be forced to work, and the employer can't be forced to keep you at work. Uh, now, there may be consequences for terminating the employment relationship early. Uh, and we'll talk about uh, in a little bit what some of those uh, might be. Uh, but again, just having a, a three-year contract, for example, doesn't guarantee you employment for three years. What it does guarantee is that the terms that you've negotiated will govern the relationship for at least as long as it lasts up to the end of the negotiated term of the agreement. So again, it can be important to have a, a, a specific term, uh, but that doesn't guarantee you a, a length of employment. In the provision of a contract that deals with the term, uh, you know, it'll often be for some period of time, let's say two years, and then it will, it will have what we call an evergreen provision where the contract just sort of rolls over every year uh, so that you're not having to constantly renegotiate at the end of every year or every two-year period. Uh, the, the contract just sort of operates on its own, renews on its own, uh, and everybody goes on about their business. Uh, when I'm looking at a contract, particularly from the employee side, I'm usually interested to see uh, if there's some opportunity to, to get out along the way, to prevent that 
automatic renewal from, from rolling over. And, uh, and, and I am interested in that because I think sometimes you want to have kind of a built-in opportunity to, to renegotiate. If there's something going on that you know, you're, you're undercompensated or some other term of your arrangement isn't working very well, you need the right to be able to come in and say, hey, you know, I don't think that, that what we agreed to five years ago really makes sense anymore. And so sometimes a provision that allows you to, to terminate you know, within 30 or 60 days before uh, the, the contract would automatically renew is appropriate to kind of give everybody an opportunity to sit down once a year and say, hey, is this still working for us? So that's sort of something to, to keep in mind. Almost every contract will have a provision that outlines the employee's duties. Uh, now, if, if the contract happens to be for the uh, chief strategy officer of some, uh, some publicly traded technology company, there may be a very lengthy description of you know, exactly what, uh, what the employer expects that employee to be doing every day and who they're going to report to and, and all that kind of stuff. Those sort of provisions are not, I don't think, all that important in a contract for uh, a physician assistant, for example. Uh, you're hired to provide uh, medical services. Everybody sort of understands what that is. You have a responsible physician. You may report to some uh, member of management, at least uh, you know, on the, for the technical side of the practice, and then have, uh, have somebody that oversees what you do. So everybody sort of understands how your relationship works. Uh, so you don't really need a lengthy job description, but what you do want uh, is some clear understanding about how your day is going to work, or, or how your week, or, or your schedule, for example, is going to happen. Uh, for medical professionals, there, there's often uh, issues around call, uh, going to the hospital to, to handle consultations. If you don't happen to work for a hospital, you work in a clinic. Uh, if you happen to have multiple office locations, when you're going to be where, uh, how much time you're going to have to get between, and whether you're going to be compensated for that time or reimbursed for your mileage. You know, all of that kind of stuff can make a big difference in, uh, in your day-to-day -day practice, and it can help to get that all sort of laid out up front in the contract so everybody's clear about when you're on call and when you're off and, uh, you know, what your other duties are. So I think that's kind of an important, uh, important point to try to cover. The other thing that comes up in the, in the context of the contract duties uh, is often whether the contract is exclusive. Sometimes there will be a clause in there that, that says that you uh, agree to devote your full-time and professional efforts to the performance of services for this particular employer. That usually means that the employer thinks that you're working just for them and that you won't be you know, moonlighting on the side either for some other uh, dermatology uh, practice or uh, perhaps for, uh, you know, in, in, a, in a family practice or an emergency room setting or something like that. Uh, and so I think you, you just want to be sure that, uh, that the contract accurately reflects you know, your, your agreement on that point, and, and that if you are interested or intend to undertake sort of moonlighting type activities, make sure that the contract doesn't prohibit that. And like I said, if, if the contract says that uh, they expect you to devote your full time and professional efforts to, to them, that usually means it's exclusive, and if you want an exception to that, you would need to get that, uh, get that negotiated in. Uh, by the way, on the, on the issue of moonlighting, uh, which is not directly related to the employment contract, but uh, if you're going to do that, you want to make sure that your malpractice insurance coverage uh, covers you for the time that you're going to spend out uh, doing you know, moonlighting activities. You, your policy that you'll have as part of your dermatology practice usually covers the practice of dermatology, but it may not follow you to the emergency room if you're covering a shift at the local uh, ER. So you want to make sure that there's an appropriate rider or some sort of policy if you're going to, if you're going to get involved in that. I think it's sort of understood uh, that everybody works for, uh, for pay, for compensation, uh, so you usually don't have to you know, insert a provision in the contract that says you're going to have a salary. I think everybody assumes you're not going to work for free. Uh, but there is usually a provision in the contract that says what your base salary is going to be. Uh, and, and really the question is, how much should that be? Uh, if an employer presents you with a number, is that the right number? Uh, if you present them with a number, is that the right number? Uh, and, of course, people's opinions on that can differ fairly wildly. Um, if you're an experienced uh, physician assistant, for example, uh, you may be able to negotiate your salary you know, based on your understanding of what your historic or anticipated production would be. What's your direct value to the practice based on the dollars you can bring into the door, you know, less 
overhead that's allocable to you and that sort of thing. If you've got some history or some understanding about how the practice works, you can usually come at negotiating a salary from that point. Uh, if you're fairly new, however, either new to the specialty or uh, new, to the, uh, new to the practice uh, as, a, as a PA or nurse practitioner, uh, you may need some help figuring out what you uh, ought to be making. Uh, a lot of times you kind of get a feel for that because you have friends or colleagues that are, that are getting jobs and you can kind of compare notes. Uh, but if you want to know specifically within your specialty, uh, there is some survey information that's available to you that you can, uh, you can use to kind of get a, get a gauge on whether you're making the right amount of money for your specialty, for your geographic location, and that sort of thing. Uh, the AAPA, for example, I think maintains a, a database and will give you a survey report that kind of will give you, a, you know, some guidelines on uh, how much the salary should be for a typical PA operating in a, in a particular location and in a particular specialty. It's not very expensive. It can give you some, you know, just some evidence or information about uh, where you think you might want to go. The other point on base salary, and this gets more into, uh, uh, I'd say, more sophisticated arrangements where compensation is based on uh, production or is variable as opposed to being a, a fixed salary. Uh, you want to make sure that, uh, that, that your salary is really a salary and not, uh, not some sort of a draw against future production, or that if it is a draw against future production, you understand that and can accept the, the consequences of that. The, the difference is that a, a salary is typically guaranteed uh, as long as you're performing the services. Uh, a draw is really an advance against money that you expect to bring into the practice through you know, your services and, and the bills that are collected. Uh, and Oftentimes, if, if the draw you take out is not enough to cover the, the production that you bring in, or I guess it's the reverse, if the production isn't enough to cover the draws you've taken, you may owe that money back to the practice, uh, or you may have your draws or, or compensation reduced in future years. It puts some risk uh, in your hands then uh, in terms of whether or not you're going to get paid the agreed amount. That may be okay, that may be part of your deal. You think there's upside to having a performance-based or production-based uh, compensation arrangement, uh, but you just need to make sure that you understand that's what's going on. And if your contract says that what you're being paid every month is a draw, uh, you know, that you just need to make sure that that is consistent with your agreement with the employer. Uh, oftentimes, there will be a bonus type arrangement with, uh, with, with your employment arrangement or in the employment contract. Uh, that may just be discretionary on the part of the employer. Uh, it may not be a significant part of your total compensation. Uh, but again, if you're uh, negotiating kind of a performance-based compensation package, uh, a performance-based bonus may be a big part of your compensation. Uh, you may have an agreement that we'll sit down at the end of the year and see what your actual production was uh, based on some formula, and uh, you'll receive an additional bonus based on that amount. Uh, and if you're going to have uh, some sort of a performance-based arrangement like that, uh, I think you want to make sure that the contract is pretty clear about how that's going to work. You know, what's the, uh, what's the formula going to be for, for calculating that bonus? Make sure that's, that's laid out fairly clearly in the contract. Uh, how is the production or, or how are the elements of that formula going to be defined? If the formula is some percentage of production less overhead, what is production? What is overhead? What goes into that? And, you know, it can be more difficult than you might might think to just sort of understand what those terms mean. You know, production, for example, could mean everything from, uh, you know, how much you charge uh, for, the, for the services you provide uh, to how much gets actually billed out. You know, there's often a write-off if, uh, if, if there's an insurer or other third-party payer that's paying the services. So you've got charges, you've got the actual amount that gets billed, and then there's the actual amount that gets collected uh, if, you're, if you're mostly uh, covered by insurance. Uh, that's usually pretty easy to collect, but if you have private pay, you know, there may be lags in, in collection or write-offs uh, for bad debt and that sort of thing. So I, I think you need to understand, you know, what it means to have production that's going to be taken into account for purposes of your bonus. Uh, the other thing that is kind of unique, I think, at least to phys physician assistants, uh, is the impact of incident to billing. Uh, which, as you probably know, is a, is a type of uh, billing arrangement where you're essentially, uh, your services as the PA are being billed through uh, the supervising physician who has started this course of care. Uh, you follow up with the patients and then they bill at the full physician rate and I believe through the physician's provider number. 
you know, if you just look at the uh, look at the production that's come through on your provider number for the year, that may not reflect any production attributable to the incident two billing because that's running through the responsible physician's uh, number. Uh, so there would need to be some understanding about how that type of production would would run through uh, the the bonus formula as well. And I think when you're dealing with a technical formula like this, something that's complex, has a lot of uh, definitional matters to it. Uh, it's good to have a couple of examples, uh, maybe even attached to your contract, so everybody, again, is pretty clear up front about how this is supposed to work. Making people put it down, put some numbers on it, see how the formula is supposed to work up front will help kind of shake out any gray areas and make sure that there isn't any you know, misunderstanding about how the, uh, how the arrangement is supposed to work. Uh, Almost every employer offers some sort of fringe benefits. Uh, the contract may not spell these out. It may just say that you're you know, going to be eligible for the same fringe benefits that everybody else that's uh, employed by the employer is eligible for. Uh, and it, in a lot of cases, at least with respect to the, the, the three or so types of benefits I've got listed on this slide, uh, they aren't really negotiable. Uh, these are sort of group arrangements that are offered to everybody. The terms apply at least on a uniform basis. Uh, now, they may be some function of salary or something like that, so the, the dollar amounts may be different. But they generally apply uniformly to everybody uh, that works for the employer. And so you don't have the opportunity to say, hey, I really think that my retirement plan contribution ought to be more than, uh, than, than these other folks. Um, so, so what I think the issue is with these is making sure you understand what it is that you're getting out of the, the, the fringe benefit arrangements that the, the employer offers. And if that somehow is, is, is less than what you think your total compensation package ought to be, uh, for example, if there's a lot of out-of-pocket cost associated with the health insurance plan and that really impacts your total you know, take-home pay, uh, you need to understand that up front so that if, if, if you want to balance that out a little bit, you can negotiate a little higher salary. And, and so what I've listed here are some of the points you may want to consider when you're evaluating kind of the value associated with these fringe benefits that the employer offers. Uh, for the retirement plan, and here I'm talking about a, a what we call a qualified retirement plan, a 401k plan or something uh, to that effect. Does the employer contribute any amount to the plan or is it all uh, you know, on you to, to contribute money out of your own pay? Uh, that's one question to answer. The other one is, if the employer is contributing money, uh, is that a match? So do you have to put some of your own money in in order to get the employer money? Or is it a discretionary contribution? You know, they're not required to put anything in, but they might decide later in the year to do that. Or is there some sort of a, a fixed formula? Uh, in, the, in the medical industry for, in particular, uh, there are some old types of plans that are uh, often referred to as money purchase plans. Uh, those are actually still uh, fairly common. There may be a fixed percentage of your pay that just goes in. You don't have to to contribute anything, it's not a match. But you need to understand uh, if, if that's the type of formula that applies or if it's something else. So again, you can evaluate uh, what that's really worth to you. Uh, often in a retirement plan, there's also a vesting schedule, uh, which may be up to, uh, up to six years. Uh, so you need to know, hey, you know, there may be so many dollars going into the plan each year, but I gotta stick around for, for six years to make sure that I'm fully vested in that money. And that, that may be of less value to me, because because it's, it's uncertain at this point how long I'm actually going to be here, and it's not totally within my control. I might be uh, let go at some point and uh, would never vest in that money. On the health insurance side, uh, again, the, the terms are not typically negotiable, but you kind of want to understand what the, what the value of the benefit is. Uh, how much is the employer paying toward the, the premium, for example? Uh, and, and how does that relate to other out-of-pocket costs that you might be subject to as part of the, part of the health insurance plan? Uh, you know, if the employer is paying 100% of the premium, but the insurance policy has a $3,500 deductible on it, uh, th that may not be a better deal than an arrangement where you've got to pay $50 or $100 a month toward the, toward the premium, but you only got a $500 deductible, so your total out-of-pocket cost for the year uh, is, is less under the arrangement where you're actually contributing something toward it. So uh, all of these policies and all of this information would be available to you uh, or, or could be provided to you at the time that you're talking about or evaluating an employment contract, and, and uh, I think it helps to think through that just to make sure you, you know what you're getting into. Disability insurance is another uh, thing that can be important, I think, particularly for professionals where 
your ability to earn a living is directly dependent on you know, your ability to get up and apply your knowledge and skill to do what you do and to, to bring home a paycheck. Uh, for that reason, disability insurance is often uh, made available uh, e either to you on an individual basis or through some group policy with your practice. Uh, but even within that sort of general category, there are a lot of different, uh, different types or a lot of nuances and you want to make sure you understand what kind of coverage uh, you've got. Uh, is, uh, is the disability insurance, for example, uh, an own occupation type policy? Uh, meaning uh, your, your disability would have to, well, the disability insurance would kick in if you have a disability that prevents you from working as a physician assistant versus say, working as a you know, grocery sacker at the, at the local grocery store. Some policies would say you have to be unable to engage in any substantial gainful activity uh, as opposed to saying you have to be unable to engage in your own occupation as a physician assistant. There can be a big difference there. Uh, you know, you may not be able to, uh, uh, you may have some disability that renders you unable to stand on your feet all day or to see clearly or something like that, but that might not prevent you from doing any sort of work, uh, in which case the policy wouldn't pay if it's, a, if it's a, any occupation type policy. Uh, sometimes in the professional context as well, there will be uh, disability insurance that covers your own specialty. Uh, you may still be able to work as a physician assistant even though you suffer from some disability. You know, you may have, you may be able to sit at a desk at an insurance company, for example, and evaluate, uh, you know, claim files or something like that. Uh, that. That's, in a sense, using your skills as a trained medical provider, but that's a whole lot different than being on your feet every day and, and examining people. Uh, you know, having the stamina to see 30 to 50 patients a day or whatever your load happens to be. Uh, and so again, I think you want to understand what does that policy really cover and, and when would it kick in if you suffered some sort of a disability. The, the other thing I'd point out on disability insurance is, uh, is the taxation of the benefit. Uh, if your coverage under the policy, the premiums that you pay for the policy, are being paid on a post-tax basis. So you're either paying it out of your salary on a post-tax basis or the employer is imputing to you the value of that premium if they're paying it, but, but, but it is, you, you're paying tax on it every year because it shows up on your W-2. That will result in any benefits that are ultimately paid under the policy being tax-free to you, uh, whereas if you pay the premiums on a pre-tax basis uh, as you're going along, if you need the disability coverage at some point, those disability benefits will be taxable. That can obviously make a big difference because disability uh, income replacement is often at some percentage of your, of your regular compensation, maybe 60%. And so you have to understand if that 60% uh, is gonna be 60% on a pre-tax or post-tax basis because it could make a difference. Other fringe benefits that uh, you know, are often provided would include things like paid time off, uh, a CME budget, and other you know, professional type uh, expenses. These items, uh, although the employer will often have a policy on, on paid time off or CME, uh, th these items uh, can be a little more negotiable than the retirement plan and the health insurance plan. Uh, and so, you know, for example, while the, the general policy may be two weeks of vacation for a full-time employee, you may want to negotiate some additional time off for attending CME events like this. You shouldn't have to use, say, your vacation days in order to take time off and come, you know, further your education. Uh, also on the CME, you know, you may want to have some agreement about how much you're allowed to go expend uh, for, for education each year, including the costs of travel and lodging and uh, registration fees and that sort of thing. Although, you know, I, I guess I would say to be, to be cautious on this, you just have to sort of understand how your employer operates. Uh, some places are pretty relaxed about things. They're willing to pay for about anything that you can justify to them as a good educational experience. Uh, and therefore, negotiating something like a $1,000 budget every year for CME may work uh, to your detriment because if you've negotiated that and you, you want to go beyond the $1,000, you know, that may be on you. Whereas if it's a less formal arrangement and you can make the case for why uh, a $1,500 expenditure is good for that year, you know, it, it uh, the, the employer will pay for it. So while I, I think it can be good to address CME in the contract, uh, you, need to, you need to also factor in kind of just how the, the relationship would work without that being a negotiated term. Uh, licensing and other professional expenses, this is, is pretty common for all of these things to be paid by the employer. They ought to be paying your state license fee. They ought to be paying your DEA fee if you need to uh, have, uh, have the ability to prescribe controlled substances. Uh, they ought to be paying the cost of being credentialed by third-party payers and hospitals and other facilities. 
Uh, and, and oftentimes they will cover, you know, journal subscriptions and memberships, including in the SDPA. So uh, th those are pretty typical. Uh, if the employer pays for those, by the way, uh, you don't pay any tax on the value of that benefit, whereas if you're paying for it out of your pocket, uh, it, you typically cannot deduct those expenses because they won't exceed 2% of your, of your adjusted gross income. So there is some benefit to shifting that over to the employer side. And if you're negotiating, uh, it may be worth getting the employer to agree to pick up some of those costs and maybe taking a little haircut uh, on your salary or something like that so that on an after-tax basis, everybody comes out in a better position. Uh, if you happen to be changing jobs or moving, there may be a provision in a contract that uh, provides a signing bonus or covers some relocation expenses. This won't apply to everybody. Uh, but if you happen to have one of these provisions in the contract, uh, in particular, what I think you ought to look out for is what we call a clawback provision. If somebody is paying you money to move and to start a new job and, and it's a significant upfront investment in you, uh, they may want some assurance that you're going to stick around for a while and they're going to be able to recover that investment. And if you don't stick around for the agreed period, six months, a year, two years, whatever it happens to be, uh, you may have an obligation under a clawback type provision to pay that money back, or at least some of it. Uh, which, which could be uh, difficult, uh, depending on the amount of the, the bonuses and the relocation costs and that sort of thing. Uh, sometimes that can't be avoided. The, uh, the new employer will just insist on it. Uh, so, you know, you, you just need to understand that it's in there. Uh, think about how long, you know, you think you could afford to stay someplace uh, uh, in order to, you know, burn off a, a clawback period or at least, you know, plan for the fact that if you needed to, to leave the job that, uh, uh, that you would have the resources available to meet that obligation. Uh, I won't spend a lot of time on relocation because I don't think it comes up that often in, in your context, but you know, there are kind of the basic relocation benefits, moving you and your stuff and your family to the new location. Uh, there can be sort of enhanced packages. If you've got a house to sell, the new employer might agree to help you with that. Uh, you know, they might provide uh, rent or other temporary housing for some period of time while you're transitioning, uh, commuting back to your old home, you know, during kind of a transition period. Uh, you know, if those apply, you're going to want to be pretty precise in the contract about how that all gets laid out. Uh, taxation can be an issue uh, if the new employer is just providing the basic relocation, the cost of moving you and your family and your stuff to the new location. Uh, that's typically uh, going to be a tax-free type benefit. Anything else is going to be taxable, and if you're really into the position to do it, if you've got a lot of uh, negotiating leverage, uh, sometimes you can get the, the, the new employer to agree to gross you up to, to pay you an additional amount of money so that after all the taxes are paid on the, on the relocation benefits and the bonus that provides the gross up, uh, you really don't end up paying any tax out of your pocket on that, uh, on that benefit. But uh, that tends to be a little bit more uh, sophisticated type arrangement. Malpractice insurance is obviously a big deal. Uh, employment contracts will typically cover this. Uh, you'll either be obligated under the contract to maintain appropriate malpractice coverage or the employer will be agreeing to maintain that for you. Some of the issues uh, include, you know, who, uh, who's going to own the policy. There may be an individual policy that you own and the employer is just agreeing to pay the premium on that. Uh, it could be a group policy that the practice holds that you become covered under. Uh, there's probably not a right or wrong answer about which, uh, which one of those arrangements you get into, although if you happen to have the individual policy, uh, that, you can take that with you if you move to another job, whereas if you're covered under a group policy and leave, you'll have to find some new coverage either at the new employer or, or uh, wherever you happen to be uh, heading to. Of course, who's going to pay the premium is, is a big deal. I, I think it's fairly typical for the employer to cover the premium if they're not. Uh, that would probably be part of a more sophisticated arrangement where you're being charged back, you know, for all of your overhead, including, uh, including a malpractice premium. Uh, one of the big questions, of course, is how much coverage do you need? Uh, and we'll talk in a minute about sort of what the, what the stakes are in terms of malpractice exposure. Uh, uh, but the typical policy would range anywhere from paying, say, up to $100,000 in the, in the event of a claim. Uh, all the way up to maybe a million dollars in the case of a claim and, and anywhere in between. Uh, I would say, based on what we'll talk about in a couple of minutes, that you'd probably want no less than about $200,000 per claim, uh, you know, of coverage. Uh, and then, of course, the, you would want the, the policy, the insurer, to provide a defense for you, hire a lawyer to defend you, do that, do that sort of thing, pay the litigation costs and, and, and that kind of stuff. So uh, that's probably the minimum you'd want to start with. And of course, if you can get, uh, get more coverage than that, it, it may be worth it for peace of mind, although you always have to kind of balance out whether the additional premium cost is worth the extra coverage. 
Uh, tail coverage, I think, is kind of a, an important issue. I don't know if that means anything to, to all of you, but, but, but what tail coverage uh, is, is coverage that will cover a, uh, that will, well, that will provide uh, in, insurance for claims that might come up or be made uh, after you have left uh, an employment relationship. There are really two types of broad types of malpractice insurance. There's occurrence-based coverage and there's claims-made coverage. If it's occurrence-based coverage, uh, th then the insurer is saying, hey, if during the period that you're covered under my policy, anytime in this year, let's say, uh, if something happens that you later get sued for, we'll cover you as to that claim. That's occurrence-based coverage. If you have that type of coverage, um, it, it won't matter uh, whether you have this so-called tail coverage because your insurance carrier will always always agree to provide uh, insurance for a malpractice claim if it happens to arise out of one of those events. Uh, however, most uh, malpractice insurance is written on a claims-made basis, which just says, look, we're going to agree to cover you for this period of time, the next year, let's say. And if there are any claims that come up during that period of time, whether they relate to some act that you did uh, during that period or some prior period, we're going to cover you uh, based on when the claim uh, is actually made by the, by the plaintiff. Uh, and, and if that's the type of coverage you have, if you leave uh, an employment relationship, for example, uh, so that you're no longer covered under a policy, and then a claim gets made, uh, you, you could be uninsured as to that claim. And, and, and that's where tail coverage comes in. It covers the, the, the tail period, the wind down, the running of the statute of limitations in legal terms uh, on claims that might arise out of prior conduct but don't get made until some port, uh, period of time after you've uh, terminated coverage under the under the prior policy, uh, and of course, an issue can be who pays for that tail coverage. Uh, you know, you might negotiate with your employer that if they fire you for no good reason, uh, they'll provide that coverage for you. Otherwise, you may need to go out and uh, pay for it yourself. Here's one of the big points. As I mentioned earlier, most uh, employers want some type of restrictive covenant, uh, and in particular, a non-compete covenant. Uh, these are all over the map uh, in terms of uh, what type of covenant you are permitted to have in a contract. Uh, enforcement of these covenants it really varies from state to state. Uh, in California, for example, you really can't have uh, a covenant not to compete in an employment contract. Uh, in other states, uh, Kansas, where I'm from, for example, uh, the law would support you know, having a, a, a non-compete covenant that uh, goes up to maybe two years and would restrict you from practicing within maybe 50 or 100 miles of, uh, of uh, you know, where your, your practice location is. So I think the first point is you need to understand what in your local jurisdiction, what, what's an enforceable covenant? Uh, because uh, if you're going to sit down and negotiate over one of these uh, non-compete covenants, my personal feeling is you ought to sort of start from a point uh, at which the covenant is enforceable. If the employer says, hey, we want a five-year covenant uh, that prevents you from uh, practicing dermatology in a five-state area around our, uh, around our clinic, you know, that's really overreaching. And you shouldn't have to give up something else in the negotiation process to get them to come down to what's otherwise an enforceable covenant not to compete uh, in your jurisdiction. So you ought to say, hey, let's start with, you know, two years and 100 miles or something like that and, and, and work it back from there. That's why I think you want to understand what's really enforceable in your, in your jurisdiction. Uh, some other techniques maybe if you're negotiating this, because again, I, I don't think it, you're, you're going to have very much luck coming in uh, into your negotiations and saying we're not going to have a non-compete covenant. The employer is just going to insist on it. And so what do you do to try to soften the edges on that a little bit and give yourself some wiggle room? Well, of course, you want to you make it as small and as tight as possible. You want to limit the geographic area in which you're restricted from practicing. You want to limit the amount of time. You know, if you could get it down to six months or a year, that's a whole lot better than 18 months or two years. Uh, so compact it as much as you can. And then, of course, make the clause as clear as, as it possibly can be. You don't want, you want a vague non-compete clause that, that, that then your employer will uh, try to hold over you and you'll spend a lot of time fighting about what the terms really mean. You know, if, if the restriction is you're not going to be permitted to practice within a 20-mile radius uh, from any office in which the, uh, in, in which the clinic uh, practices, uh, you, you want to understand if that's really a, you know, draw a circle type radius or is that a radius from every uh, side of the city limits in which the, you know, the practice exists. You, you want to be fairly technical and fairly precise so, again, you don't spend a lot of time uh, 
negotiating uh, after the fact about what, the, what that covenant really means. Uh, and then I think you might want to try to include uh, an escape clause if you're particularly concerned about, uh, you know, being working for a fairly short period of time and then being, uh, being subject to a covenant not to compete that knocks you out of being able to practice in, in the dermatology specialty for, for some substantial period of time. And I'll talk more about that in just a, just a second here. Uh, some other restrictive covenants that, that are often included in uh, your contract would include maybe a non-solicitation clause, uh, which would prevent you either from uh, well, would typically prevent you from stealing employees from the, from the practice if you move to another, uh, another clinic. Uh, that doesn't really prevent you from going to work and taking another job, which you would need to be aware if you were subject to some kind of a, a, a clause like that so that you're not trying to convince your friends to come with you or steal your nurse so they go to the, the new practice with you or something uh, along those lines. Uh, there are often also confidentiality uh, provisions. Uh, that's probably not as big a deal uh, for medical providers. Of course, you're bound by HIPAA to maintain the confidentiality as to your patients. Uh, typically, the employment contract confidentiality clause would also include you know, business type things related to the employer as well as the actual uh, you know, patient type information. Again, it's not, that doesn't particularly prevent you from going and doing uh, another, another arrangement, but uh, you at least want to be aware if you're subject to the obligation. There's typically a provision in a contract that talks about what happens uh, when the contract terminates. And uh, it may be as simple as just saying, hey, the contract terminates and we all walk away. We'll pay you for the work you provided up through the last day of your employment, and that's it. We'll just part ways. Uh, if you have the ability to negotiate a more sophisticated termination clause, uh, some things you might want to think about are, uh, you know, whether you would get severance pay, for example. As I mentioned at the beginning, uh, there's no guarantee that a two-year contract means that you're going to be employed for two years. But uh, you could negotiate a clause that says, hey, if you terminate my employment, we're, we're all agreeing that this is supposed to be a two-year arrangement. If you come to me uh, some at some point before the end of that two-year period and say, hey, we don't want you anymore, and it's not because I did anything wrong, uh, you're just firing me, uh, uh, you know, I, I want some income protection. I'm relying on the fact that I'm going to have this job and I, I, need to, uh, I need the ability to pay my rent or mortgage and that sort of thing. And so you might get the, uh, the employer to agree to, to pay, uh, continue your salary for some period of time, uh, maybe six months, maybe a year, maybe some function of how long you've been there, that sort of thing. Uh, and that, again, would particularly apply in the case where you are, you're involuntarily terminated without cause, or maybe where you quit, you voluntarily terminate, but for some good reason. You know, you're not being allowed to see patients anymore. You're being made to drive to some, uh, you know, outside office location that's 70 miles away or, or, or something along those lines. Uh, if there is some sort of a more sophisticated termination arrangement like that, uh, it may also give the employer the right to terminate you for cause and then not pay that severance pay or otherwise provide you know, benefits you know, beyond the termination of your employment. Uh, and there, if, if there's a for cause type uh, clause in your contract, you're going to want to make sure you understand what the scope of that is and, and be fairly precise about it. It's fairly typical, for example, to say that a, that a professional's employment can be terminated if they lose their license. I think everybody understands that if you don't have a license to practice, you're not much good uh, as a professional. But, but there will be other provisions, too. They, they may say, well, look, if you commit a crime, we might want to terminate your employment because that undermines our confidence in you and your integrity. Uh, but there can be a difference between you know, being charged with a crime, for example, and then actually being convicted of it. Uh, if the four for-cause termination clause says that you can be terminated just because you committed a felony act uh, where you haven't actually pled guilty or, or been tried and, and had, the, had the opportunity to present evidence, and the employer can just come to you and say, well, we saw in the paper that uh, you, know, you were indicted on this, on this felony charge, see you later, uh, you know, that, that may not be very good for you. So you want to make sure that the, that, the, that the clause maybe is stacked a little more in your favor, requires you to be convicted of a crime in order to be terminated. Uh, Failure to perform is kind of an amorphous concept, but often works its way into, into the for-cause type terminations. Uh, and, and what you want there really is the opportunity to be told, hey, we don't think you're performing up to our standards, you're not following our instructions, and to be given an opportunity to fix that before you're terminated for cause. Typically, a 30-day cure period or something like that would be available to you to, 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 get, to get right with whatever the employer is wanting you to do, or else say, hey, you know, I'm, I just can't live with that and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave. I mentioned in the context of the restrictive covenant uh, some escape clauses. Uh, let's say you're starting a new job and uh, you just don't know uh, how you're going to fit in with 
you know, the clinic, uh, the, the physician that you're going to be assigned to work for, uh, but they want a two-year non-compete clause, uh, and you could be in pretty bad shape if you went to work there, uh, and within six months or so, the, the relationship fell apart, uh, and now you're knocked out of dermatology practice for, for two years. Uh, in those kind of cases, to address that, I'd suggest, you know, maybe negotiating a trial period, just getting everybody to agree that, hey, you know, we're just going to, we'll do a free look for about six months or something like that. If for any reason either one of us aren't happy uh, and, and this thing falls apart, uh, we walk away and, and the non-compete covenant doesn't apply. That at least gives you a little bit more flexibility. Not everybody will agree to that, by the way, but it's at least something to negotiate over. Uh, there may be other situations where your employment might be terminating uh, and you want the ability to, uh, to, to get out of particularly the restrictive covenant. Uh, let's say that the, the practice gets sold. Maybe it, you know, it's, a, it, it's a practice where there's one physician that you work for and you're okay working for them, uh, but you may not be okay working for you know, whoever they might sell the practice to. Uh, you might want the ability to walk away from your, your non-compete clause if they're gonna, gonna sell the business to somebody. Uh, you know, bankruptcies and other, other type situations are not as common in, in, uh, in the medical area, but, but conceptually it's really anything that might be a, a material change in your employment relationship that might justify you being able to walk away and not be subject to this non-compete right, uh, uh, as opposed to, you know, being bound by this covenant even though you're no longer working for the employer. Typically at the end or near the end of an employment agreement or any contract, frankly, there'll be this, this sort of laundry list of what we often call miscellaneous provisions, boilerplate uh, in legal terms. Uh, and there will typically be a little clause tucked in there that says something to the effect of, this contract constitutes the entire agreement of the parties with respect to the subject matter hereof. That sounds like a pretty good contract clause, doesn't it? Uh, and it, and it looks pretty innocuous, and you'll be reading along, and you'll just sort of turn the page and say, yeah, whatever, it's, this is our deal. Uh, that has special legal significance, and you ought to, you ought to understand what that means. Uh, if that clause is in your contract, and it typically will be, that means that, that, that everything that's part of your deal is, is limited to what's written down in the contract. So if you had some side agreement, if you had some prior agreement, some oral agreement that's not written in the contract, and that's supposed to be a term of your employment, you need to get that in the agreement because that side agreement is no longer going to be enforceable once you've signed this, this, this contract that has what we call a merger or integration or an entire agreement clause. Again, it sounds kind of innocuous, but uh, if you've got one of these side deals, you're going to want to make sure that uh, you get it written down in the contract. Some other things that sort of show up in the boilerplate, uh, things like uh, where are we going to litigate our disputes? If there is a dispute, who's going to pay the fees? Are we going to arbitrate disputes instead of, you know, handling them in court. Uh, all of those things, I think, tend to run more in the employer's favor than the employee's favor. Uh, a fee payment clause, for example, uh, that says, look, if we're going to litigate over something, the loser's going to pay 100% of everybody's fees, attorney costs, court costs, you know, whatever else might come up. Uh, that can be a real disincentive to the employee to want to fight over some legitimate dispute under the contract because that can, it, it can be much more difficult for you to be on the hook for those, uh, those amounts of money than it would, say, you know, the business on the other side uh, of the table. So uh, to the extent possible, I try to limit the exposure to those if I'm looking at a contract from the employee's uh, perspective. Uh, similarly, with arbitration, uh, people like arbitration uh, often because it's uh, uh, it's a private proceeding. You're not out uh, in, a, in a public courtroom where uh, public records are being taken. Uh, but the parties often have to pay all the costs associated with the arbitration. And again, that can be sort of a uh, disincentive to, to going through a dispute if you happen to be on the employee side thinking that you might be on the hook for some large amount of uh, costs. So, uh, you know, you have to think through that, but uh, I, tend to, I tend to not favor those, particularly from the employee side. A couple of other points just to think about. Uh, access to records. If you're an employee of a practice, uh, you really don't have a right to access the records of the practice. And I'm talking here primarily about the business records. You know, what, is the, what are the billing and collection and, and uh, you know, patient uh, data like that? Uh, what's going on? What do your numbers look like, if you want to, want to think of it that way? Uh, you may want to negotiate the right to, to, to have some reasonable access to those records so that uh, you can verify, for example, uh, if you've got a production-based compensation arrangement that the employer is really, you know, 
doing the calculations correctly. Or, or you may want the right to, to just see what your production looks like so you can then evaluate whether you're being paid a fair amount of money uh, to, uh, to compensate you for what you're actually bringing into the practice. Uh, employers may resist this a little bit, but you at least ought to talk about you know, what your right is going to be to get some information about that sort of thing. Uh, buying into the practice, uh, this can be a fairly complicated uh, uh, issue. Uh, some states limit the extent to which uh, PAs or nurse practitioners can own an interest in a medical practice. If you're going to get into one of these, if the contract's going to address it, I think you almost certainly need to get some, some professional advice uh, from somebody that understands both the laws and then how you would structure uh, that type of buy-in arrangement. Uh, and that's really sort of beyond the scope of what we want to cover here. Uh, I included this next slide sort of at risk of being you know, accused of shamelessly promoting the legal profession here. Uh, but what I wanted to highlight for you is uh, you know, thinking about what it means to really work with a lawyer or some other professional advisor when you're, when you're negotiating a contract. Uh, lawyers can be expensive, but there are ways to manage that. Oftentimes, somebody will give you an estimate or a flat fee as part of an arrangement. And of course, you need to sort of think about uh, what's the value you're getting back from, from, from the lawyer or other representative when you're negotiating a contract. It, is it helpful to you to have somebody else that can sit down at the table and, and knock heads with your employer to sort of be the bad cop, so to speak? Is it helpful to you to have somebody that's really looking out for your interests and making sure the contract, you know, protects you, uh, or at least you understand, you know, kind of what the, what the opportunities and, and pitfalls are? And so even though they may cost you some money, uh, it may be a good, good value in the long run. That's uh, really all I think I need to say about that. Some other resources that are available to you if you're... Um, you know, wanting to know what's typical or for an employment contract type arrangement or what you may want to avoid or, or try to negotiate. Uh, I've listed some, you know, websites and, and journals here. You, you're probably familiar with all of these, but all of these, uh, all of these sites or, or journals that I've listed uh, typically provide information about practice management type issues uh, and, and would be a decent resource for you. Uh, now we'll shift over to risk management real quickly in the last few minutes we've got. Uh, and, and when we talk about risk management, I think we're mostly talking about uh, malpractice type issues, uh, although of course, you know, your reputation uh, is important too. Uh, it, although you don't want to get rung up for a big legal judgment in a malpractice action, you, you also want to have a good reputation whether or not you're actually being, you know, sued for malpractice. And so uh, it's important to kind of balance all of that, that out as you're going along. Um, I thought we'd look for just a minute at sort of what the stakes are in terms of you know, malpractice exposure. There isn't a lot of data out there that, that allows you to understand you know, what your risk really is at, at, uh, at, at uh, being hit with some sort of a large malpractice judgment. But there is, uh, there is this organization operated through the Department of Health and Human Services. It's a federal agency called the National Practitioner Data Bank. Uh, it's sort of a repository of information uh, about medical malpractice uh, uh, payments that have been made on behalf of medical providers and then other sort of adverse actions. If you lose your license or have a licensure issue or lose your credentialing, uh, that all gets reported into this data bank. And, and the data bank then issues a report uh, on, a, on a yearly basis, although the most recent one is for 2006, and it provides a fair amount of data that tells us something about you know, kind of what a physician assistant's uh, exposure is to, to malpractice risk. And frankly, there's some good news here. At the risk of encouraging you to, 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 to be less careful, which is not what I'm, uh, not what I'm saying here, I'm going to tell you that, that the good news is that, that, that at least statistically speaking, uh, it's not real likely that you're going to run across a, a big malpractice claim in your practice. Uh, in, the, in the 2006 report for the National Practitioner Data Bank, it's, it was reported that less than 1% of all uh, malpractice reports and payments uh, for that year and actually over the, over the life of that, that, that database, which is about 15 years, uh, less than 1% of those relate to physician assistants. That compares to about 80% of malpractice reports uh, relating to physicians. And so while there is a lot of malpractice exposure in the medical industry, uh, for physician assistants in particular, uh, and I think the same, the same really applies to nurse practitioners, uh, the statistical risk is fairly low. Uh, in terms of the numbers of what you might be exposed to, uh, the, the average claim that's reported runs in the range of about $165,000 to $200,000. I mentioned earlier that you may want at least $200,000 of coverage on your, uh, on your malpractice insurance policy. That would be consistent with, with at least what the average, uh, average claims are 
under, uh, you know, under a typical uh, malpractice claim. Now, that doesn't mean that you couldn't get rung up for a big one. Uh, I noticed in, in the report as I was reading it, uh, there was one claim reported in 2006 uh, for a $1.6 million malpractice uh, payment on behalf of a physician assistant. Now, that happened to be uh, in, in the obstetrics practice, which, of course, is uh, traditionally a higher uh, malpractice exposure area. But there is the opportunity for a, for, for a, for a big... Uh, a big judgment or a big payment, uh, so you do want to be careful. But again, I think on the whole, it's not a huge risk, uh, at least statistically speaking. What about malpractice insurance? Don't we have that to cover malpractice risks? Well, yes, that, that's true. But of course, uh, even if you get sued and there's no basis for it, uh, it can be very distracting. You're going to have to be deposed. You're going to have to maybe go to court uh, and spend a lot of time thinking about, uh, thinking about the malpractice case and not focusing on your practice. And, uh, that can be a real distraction. There may also be policy limits and deductibles and other things like that. So just because you have insurance doesn't necessarily protect you. Um, it's important to remember that you really can't uh, have malpractice exposure to somebody unless you've entered into a provider uh, relationship with them. Uh, it, it, uh, in legal terms, we call this you know, the, the duty aspect of it. You have to owe a duty to somebody before you can breach that and therefore they can sue you for their damages. Uh, now, it's not always that obvious when somebody becomes your, your patient. It's really kind of a question of contract. Did they come to you and did you agree to provide you know, advice for them uh, related to, to medical matters? Uh, it's pretty clear when somebody comes into your office and you see them and that's a, that's a pretty typical deal, but you know, uh, if somebody comes up to you at the cocktail party and says, gee, I got this rash on my right hip, will you take a look at it? I mean, you know, it's not too clear whether you've entered into some kind of a relationship. Now, I know how this goes at the family reunions and the cocktail parties. I mean, the, the dermatology PA is very popular because everybody's got a mole or a rash and they, everybody, the family just kind of lines up and says, hey, would you mind uh, taking a look at this? And I'm not going to tell you not to do that kind of stuff because, of course, it's going to happen. But, you know, be careful about uh, casually dispensing advice and, and be careful about casually dispensing advice in, uh, in other forums. You know, now people will Facebook you and say, hey, my daughter's got this rash and should I be, you know, worried about it? Uh, you can respond and say, hey, you know, well, this is something you might want to think about, but, uh, you know, you really can't evaluate somebody without looking at them or, you know, really getting the full, the full physical and history and, and that sort of thing. And so, again, be careful about the kind of advice you're dispensing because you may get into, you know, somebody alleging that you were in a provider relationship uh, when you didn't really think that you had created one. There really isn't liability for malpractice um, unless you uh, fail to uh, satisfy the applicable standard of care. Uh, this is, again, a legal, a legal concept. Uh, it varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but it is generally a community standard. And so the, the standard of care you'll be held to in McPherson County, Kansas, for example, may be different than the standard of care you would be held to in uh, New York County, New York, where uh, you know, there's certainly a lot of people practicing at a fairly sophisticated level. Uh, experts provide testimony in malpractice cases about what the applicable standard is in a particular area. Uh, but kind of my shorthand reference for this, and it sounds a little flip or glib, but you know, if you can just make sure that you're the best person in town, uh, then you're going to be setting the standard of care, and almost by definition, you can't, uh, you can't violate it. So uh, there is an incentive there to just be good at what you do, I think. Uh, PA standards uh, are also different than physicians, at least in most jurisdictions. You aren't necessarily held to the same standard as your supervising physician. I think this may have something to do with why there are fewer claims against PAs, uh, that and the fact that the PAs may just be really good at what they do. Uh, or I think also PAs are, often know that somebody is looking over their shoulder. You know, there is that responsible physician there that's going to going to you know, be reviewing their charts or has the ability to know what's going on, and that causes you to be a little more thorough and cautious in, in what you're doing. It's good to maintain good documentation, uh, of course, about what you've done, what you decided not to do. For example, if, you're, if you've got a tough case and, and there's several things on your, on your differential uh, and, and you're sort of having to make judgments about what, what to do or not do in the course of a diagnosis or treatment, just make sure that your files you know, reflect that process, that, that you didn't just ignore some, some issue, that you took it into account, but based on your judgment and given everything you were seeing on that day, it didn't make sense to pursue this particular you know, line of diagnosis or treatment at that point in time. Uh, that can go a long way to helping uh, show down the road that if, if some problem came out of that that was really not foreseeable at that point in time, that you shouldn't be responsible for it. Finally, you know, everybody can have a bad day. Things happen. Uh, uh, you know, 
mistakes can occur, uh, or you can just be, you know, having a rough relationship with a particular patient. You know, try not to get rattled. Uh, but if there is a problem, uh, for heaven's sake, don't ignore it. Talk to, talk to somebody else in the practice about it. Talk to your supervising physician. Uh, ignoring it or trying to cover it up or trying to, you know, brush it aside almost never works and almost always creates, a, you know, a problem down the road. Now, of course, you want to be careful not to admit uh, liability, and this is where lawyers sometimes get, get to be uh, on the opposite side of other people that, that, that are interested in risk management. There is evidence, for example, that apologizing to people for mistakes that occur can go a long ways toward uh, preventing them from, from bringing a lawsuit later on. But if you're apologizing to somebody, you're sort of admitting that you've made a mistake, uh, and, and the lawyers would say, well, gee, isn't that sort of a slam dunk malpractice case against you? So you have to balance all that out. My advice would be to, you know, be nice to people, uh, apologize for, you know, what they're going through, apologize for, you know, things taking longer than they should have, something like that. Try not to admit that you think you made a mistake, but, uh, but be courteous to people uh, and, and don't run and hide or don't shut off the communication channel with somebody just because you think there's a likelihood uh, of getting into some sort of a problem. Be reasonable about it, use common sense, uh, and just be good at what you do, uh, which I'm, I'm sure all of you are. Uh, I think I've used up uh, more than my uh, allotted period of time here. Uh, if anybody does have questions, maybe we can take a, a quick one or two, uh, and then, uh, of course, I can catch you after the break. I've also listed my contact information here. I'm more than happy to entertain questions by email or phone if you have things that come up. Uh, thank you for your time. Do we have any, uh, any questions? All right, then. Well, seeing, seeing none, I appreciate the opportunity to be here. <laughs>